Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Hello and welcome back. I'm Jan Daly, FT Arts Editor, and this week on the Arts Podcast, we'll be discussing musicals. There are a lot of them moving into the West End at the moment. Shoes, Million Dollar Quartet, Wizard of Oz, Ghost the Musical, Betty Blue Eyes, a musical comedy, and the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee at the Donmar Warehouse. And rumbling in the background to all this is a hoo-ha in New York over Spider-Man, which no doubt we will discuss further. What's the appeal of the musical? Is it more diverse than its critics imagine? And are musicals actually a good thing for the theatrical landscape? With me to discuss these and other questions in the studio are Jamie Lloyd, who is currently directing the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee at the Donmar Warehouse, and the FT's theatre critics, Ian Shuttleworth and Sarah Hemming. Jamie, at the Donmar, the Spelling Bee follows the much-acclaimed King Lear quite a leap. Why stage a musical? Why Why now? What does it offer? What was in your mind when this choice was made? Well, I think the uh, the Donmar obviously has a history of presenting uh, musicals in a, in our kind of intimate space, often um, large-scale musicals that we shrink down to a kind of chamber size. Um, and obviously we have an amazing relationship with Sondheim. Um, sadly, I think that that uh, relationship is probably exhausted now probably because we've done so many of his pieces but also because the chocolate factory and other theatres are, are now doing his work i think trevor nunn is maybe doing uh, follies later this year um so it was really about looking at other musical theatre voices i had a history with um william finn who's the composer of uh, spelling bee when i was a student i directed a show of his called Falsetto Land, which went to the National Student Drama Festival and then went on to uh, Edinburgh under the banner of the National Student Theatre Company. I directed a a two-night production of uh, his song cycle, Elegies, and I think he had a kind of uh, a less successful production of his kind of musical review, Make Me a Song. But other than that, he's really not been that popular in this country. So it was really about kind of you know, importing a new voice. And also just a great opportunity for the Donmar to let its hair down. I mean, how thrilling to do a musical comedy at the Donmar, which we haven't um, really ever done. And um, it's just a great, you know, fun, charming piece. And something, as you say, couldn't be more different to King Lear. Certainly couldn't be more different. Now, Sarah, this boom in musicals, I mean, is it actually a good thing. I mean, I know that it pays a lot of bills. The Lion King, for example, grossed more than £34 million in 2010 alone. And Wicked took more than £1 million in a single week last year. And Broadway's also had a record-breaking holiday season grossing something like $60 million. So this is great. It keeps a lot of people in work and a lot of bums on seats, a lot of people very happy. But sometimes, if you don't particularly love musicals you look through the theatre listings and you think "Mm, musical 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 and sometimes I can't find a play to see do you think that 
there are too many and that they sort of clog up the landscape a bit. There are a lot at the moment. Um, There was a bit of a swing the other way, I think, um, a couple of years ago. People were writing enthusiastic articles about how there were lots of straight plays in the West End. And I was looking at the West End listings before I came in this morning and I think about two-thirds of the shows on are currently musicals and there will be more because more are moving in. I mean, I don't want to be a musical snob. I mean, if you want a fun night out, that that's great. And of course, one of the one of the music, the sorts of musicals you get are these what we call jukebox musicals, which um, basically have some sort of setup in order to allow people to play the sort of songs they like, so be it Queen or Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons or whatever. And if you're going to spend a lot of money, then you're going to you know you're going to hear songs you want to hear, and that's I suppose for the the audience the, the draw. Um, I'd say there were musicals and musicals. To be honest, um, picking up on what Jamie said about chamber musicals, some of the most interesting evenings I've had in the theatre recently have been at the hands of small, delicately done musicals, such as A Little Night Music, or uh, Assassins a long time ago at the Dunmar, or um, Sweet Charity, witty, intelligent musicals that are artistically challenging. But as you say, if you're looking for a night out that rattles your brain cells a bit, the the, the big jukebox or film-based musical isn't going to do it, and that's a bit of a shame. Although that said, really, I yes, one aspect of the frequently repeated variation of the West End in Crisis story, um, the, the subset of the question, are there too many musicals, is this observation that in recent years, uh, productions of musicals have started to spill over from the larger West End theatres that one would normally expect to be the territory of musicals into, for want of a better term, playhouses, where one would normally expect um, tuneless plays. Um, uh, and so this is uh, this is clogging up the West End in general and particularly um, militating even further against the prospect of seeing original new writing in the West End. But again, when you stop to think about it, when's the last time you saw new original musical writing in the West End? Um, spelling B is Donmar, which is geographically West End, but a, a, a chamber-sized venue. I was trying to think on my way here. The last non-jukebox, non-sequel, non-movie of musical. Uh, The last large-scale musical I can recall opening, uh, written kind of created out of whole cloth and opening in the West End was Imagine This, which wasn't exactly a a shining example of uh, of talent that's being blocked. So it's, yeah, it's very much swings and roundabouts, as as Sarah says. Jamie, is that partly because even for... The smaller venues, and even at a smaller scale, musicals are extremely expensive to stage, aren't they? So they're incredibly expensive. I mean, every Mm. time we do a musical, you know, at the Donmar, we lose, you know, at least sixty-five thousand pounds. I mean, it's a a, a massive loss um, for subsidised theatres to do it, and of course, the overheads in the West End. I mean, I think that's the thing because I think we are, you know, audiences demand huge production values uh, in the West End, and I think that that's why producers play it safe by, as you say, doing the jukebox musicals you know the songs that people know the people you know the shows that are going to give people a good time and you know it's it's incredibly sad that actually we can't certainly in this country generate musicals that you know are witty and intelligent and deal with you know social issues or important things or say something about the world in which we live um most of the time they are of course just out you know for they're, they're sort of designed for hen parties and birthday parties and people to kind of let their hair down and have a good time Well, it is, though, as you said, Ian, it is a diverse form, isn't it? 
and it's been made more diverse recently by venues such as the Donmar and the Menio Chocolate Factory, which you mentioned, um, doing, as it were, pocket-sized musicals that then sometimes transfer to bigger venues. And in in a way, I think we've we've actually learned to see the musical a little differently because of that. Um, one of the ones we've got coming up is Betty Blue Eyes. It's based on Alan Bennett's A Private Function, so it's not completely um, original by any means. But and it has Richard Eyre directing and an animatronic pig. I'm very bad at saying that word. So it's got lots of surprises. Is that the sort of thing that you would look forward to as? I mean, can I be? I'm going to be bald here. Is this anything more than a money spinner? Well, I, I hope that it is. I mean, I have absolutely no knowledge of of the content of the show at all. I don't know the original film, and I don't know anything about um, the composition. I mean, I think that's the the thing. The perfect musical, of course, is the one in which the book and the lyrics and the music all are kind of serving the piece, serving the narrative. If it can do that, then it will be a great success, I'm sure. Um, and of course, like you say, most musicals are based upon books or films, actually. Very few musicals are actually, you know, original stories so that doesn't i don't think um i don't think we should hold anything against you know it in that way this isn't as it were um milking a franchise it's it's not that a private function is a uh, is an immensely popular brand in this in the way that that say dirty dancing is which is i still i think still holds the uh the advanced box office record for the West End, um, or even something like Sister Act, which was um, a very strange creature, uh, a musical with an original score based on a movie that had had a score composed entirely of soul classics. And a private function as a film is is entirely in a different in a different constituency. It, it's a much smaller scale and and, and more British, um, shall we say? The, it, it doesn't have the um, the immediate glitz appeal. It offers some security, in a sense, for people who want to see a musical but don't want to see Dirty Dancing or Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons because you have, for people who want something that's going to be fun but is also a little bit challenging, so you have Richard Eyre, as you say, you have Alan Bennett, who wrote the original um, the original part of the... was one of the co-writers of the original film, so, you know, the national treasure status. And it's also apparently set in 1947 in aust- Austerity Britain. So it's kind of chimes with the times, but it's people making the best of the... So, it, well, it's hard. I don't... We, we shouldn't prejudge it, perhaps, but uh, no, but it I, could I really, be I really brought it up because it sounded to mm. me a little bit like um, yet another sort of sub... Uh, subset of this mm. wider genre. I also have one of the League of Gentlemen in a lead role, as do you, Jane. Yes, do well, what, they're kind of what, what, yes, what is it that, that, that they're suddenly going into song and dance? <laughs> it's, know, it's, 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 yes, it's, it's, it really conjures up kind of quite terrifying visions, which I'm sure will all be laid to rest when we see the work <laughs> itself. Well, let's just go back a little bit to Spider-Man, which does fascinate me in terms of uh, the, the, the mega-musical really it is i mean it has reportedly cost 70 million dollars and it's got um, music by U2 Bono and Edge and it's directed by Julie Taymor who of course is a very different sort of director in most of our um in most of our minds i mean compared to, to directing Helen Mirren as as uh, the female Prospero but it does sound as if this 
has sort of almost exploded on itself or imploded, whichever. I mean, it has just become too huge, too unwieldy, too difficult, too complicated. It's been running since November with endless cancelled press nights. The critics finally rebelled and just reviewed it anyway, rather unflatteringly mostly. Um, Is it possible for a musical just to be too big or do you think actually everyone's having a perfectly good time seeing it and it's all good fun and it was very good publicity well i i imagine <laughs> that there are a whole a bunch of families that are absolutely having an amazing time i think i think someone saw it um and described to me how it was a kind of eight-year-old boy sitting on the other side of the center aisle and spider-man jumped down from the upper circle right down and landed in that aisle and that little boy's face is sort of something to treasure in many ways i mean you can't take that away you can't take that moment away from that small child but for my taste I mean I'm I'm not really interested I don't really go and see large-scale musicals because for me I think um, musicals we should be taking very seriously as acting pieces and I direct musicals and always have done as as if they are plays we do the same rigorous work we would do as if we were doing a pinter play so that may not be the case with blockbuster movies when uh, blockbuster musicals when you know sets and you know, hydraulics and flying sequences take the precedent the thing about Spider-Man is it's it's not simply about what may or may not be the quality of the show itself. It's about the packaging and the presentation. I, to a certain extent now, um, musicals are marketed not as theatre but as event where the, uh, the price adds to the air of exclusivity uh, and endorses that sense of event, that sense of extraordinariness. Um, Spider-Man was clearly, for a long time, pre-publicised as one of the uh, uh, one of the top-flight events of this kind, and they've simply reaped the whirlwind of then trying to put all that publicity and, and trying to put that juggernaut of of demand and of desire on hold till they get it right. And yeah, you know, in that respect, they they really have nobody to blame but themselves. One critic <clears throat> suggested that they never actually finish it, that they carry on like the old fourth road bridge, redoing it and redoing it and redoing it till they finally take it off stage. Um, yeah. But there is, there's a bit of a mismatch as well, isn't there, between the, there has been traditionally between the critics and these big, big blockbuster musicals. If you think of Les Mis, I think when Les Miserables first opened, it got quite... Um, quite sniffy reviews by the, and it's gone on for 25 years it's just celebrated its 25th yeah I mean that is a difficulty that I think sometimes perhaps people who like you Jan are looking for a a good straight challenging play or or a you know a, a new piece or a great classic and the critics who are looking for what you're talking about Jamie great performances in a very detailed way they slightly hit the there's a bit of a mismatch between them and and this big blockbuster events that people just want to say they were part of which is is difficult to review to be honest jamie do you get a different audience at the donmar for musical comedies well i think well given that spelling bee is so very different in donmar programming altogether already yes there is a, a, a vastly different audience um a much younger audience actually and a much more diverse audience I don't know why that is really. I think maybe it's got quite a cult following as a show, but um, I don't really, not sure, know really why that is. Maybe it's because it's just people wanting to have fun in a small scale setting. Maybe also because there's four audience volunteers on stage every night. So they kind of, again, there's no two shows are the same. So it's a similar thing. You know, in a, bizarrely, it's a similar thing, isn't it? You kind of either you go and kind of watch the kind of car crash of Spelling Bee or you kind of watch the kind of live event of four volunteers on stage. I don't know. The kind of live experience is, is similar in many ways, I guess. 
Well, that's a very interesting thought and we're looking forward to it. Thank you so much for coming. I'm afraid that um, that's all we have time for. So a big thank you to my studio guests, Jamie Lloyd, Ian Shuttleworth and Sarah Hemming and to you for listening. The Arts Podcast was produced by Griselda Murray-Brown. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.